Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Welcome to episode 99, and today I'm going to talk, be talking to Christina Panasco, who's a lecturer in the Department of Politics and International Studies at the University of Cambridge, and an author of 10 Principles for Policymaking in the Energy Transition, Lessons from Experience, which was undertaken by the Economics of Energy Innovation and System Transition Project at Exeter University in the UK. So welcome to the interview, Christina. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here today. Well, I'm really excited about this because this, um, your document um, sort of fits into some of the, the conversations that we've been having lately on Energy Talks around industrial policy and about the role of policy versus technology in the as drivers of of the energy transition. So let's start there. We'll just do we'll do a bit of an uh, an overview conversation, and then we'll get into each one of the uh, of your, uh, principles. So first question, policy drive the energy transition or is it technology change that's driving the, the, uh, the transition? What's your take on that? Well, I think my take is that it's not one or the other. It's a combination of both of that, of both of us, uh, both, both of us, uh, both of them, uh, sorry. Um, the idea of policy is like policy uh, as, as an entity can be technology push policy and be working in pushing all this technological change uh, to help in the transition, but it also generates demand pool. Uh, and that's where uh, we are more and more in the in the in the current in the current phases. So during the last 30 years, policy has been very important in putting technologies, in the position and in the place they are today, in reducing cost of the technologies, in allowing us to have a, a, a fund and a set of different technological options for uh, the production and the generation of electricity and energy with renewable energy, for example. Now that we have, um, we, we managed to reduce the cost of those technologies to a point that they are competitive with fossil fuels, we need policy to foster demand to, to, to create the markets that adopt these technologies and, and then let the economy, of course, uh, do their magic and all this, but we still need technology, uh, sorry, we still need the policy in order to foster um, the creation of markets, uh, the adoption of the technologies, and also the um, change in behavior that uh, will allow us as well to adopt these technologies at the industrial level, but also in households. Okay, I, I, I think that you and I would agree then. I, I've, I've argued for a long time that the role of policy in the early stages of the energy transition, which really has its roots back in the 80s and 90s. So at that time, it was um, uh, foster technology development and bring down costs and and start you know commercializing and get economies of you know scaling up, that sort of thing. 
But then policy's role has changed in the last, I, I would say, even like five years in in that now it's about about pace. How fast can we do things, you know, to achieve climate targets? And 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 really, it's not just even about climate anymore. Now, it's you know, the energy transition has become an, an, an economic transition, an economic transformation, because we have to create these new industries to, you know, build batteries and build electric... Or, or we need to retool old industries, like you know, automake, uh, automaking is is all in now on electric and is being trans, tra- you know, retooled and re-engineered at a, a terrific pace. So, uh, okay, we'll we'll move on. We have a lot to cover, so we'll 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 leave that there. But I want to ask you one question before we get into the ten principles, and that is the extent to which your principles uh, fit within the rubric of industrial policy okay so well they represent what we should do at the industrial level as well in the in the coming in the coming years uh the the idea of creating these 10 principles of or of putting together these 10 principles it, it was not about new principles it was about bringing together the evidence uh that us or other groups have done already or have researched in order to push a change in the paradigm in how we advise governments uh, to do to do um, policy to foster a faster transition, and this of course involves industries. And these principles will help or bring together uh, ideas on how to bring at the same time uh, governments, but also the private sector, which is key in order to reach this faster this faster transition. It's um, it's a matter of putting together, uh, I, I would say, uh, the the basis, and then manage to attract the investment in industries, in infrastructure, in order to reach this this faster um, low carbon uh, transition. A related question: um, When I have this conversation with other experts, we often talk about. Uh, the the uh, the capacity within a government to do and to do policy development because it used to be you know prior to 1980 uh industrial policy was commonly used by governments and there was a lot of capacity inside government there were economists and there were other experts who could advise you know they could they could create the policy create the legislation create the regulations uh supervise the implementation act and and after 1980 with the switch to more liberal kind of you know the Milton Friedman revolution we we kind of lost all of that and now governments are thinking about industrial policy and they look within their own shop and and they don't have the horsepower to do the kind of policy development they do. Now, this is a you know observation has been made about Canada and and many of the most of the provinces. Would would you say in your experience that that applies to governments in Europe and 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 the United States and and to other governments that you're aware of? Yeah, institutional framework helps a lot in fostering these transitions. And if we don't have the framework, it's, it's way more way more difficult. In terms of this uh, uh, idea that you just put there, this is something that the project is actually trying to tackle. So one of the main objectives of this project, of, of each project, is to generate capacity building in different governments around the world. In this particular case, we are working with Brazil, China, and India in order to bring these ideas, how to do policy, what is going to work better 
while at the same time we are trying to understand that this is a, a, a set uh, of principles that might need to be adaptable as well on the different uh, political context, policy context, and institutional context around the world. But certainly there is uh, a need to um, educate, let's say, to, to generate uh, uh, more capacity in how governments and, and above all policymakers uh, in a more general way um, can apply the, the principles and, and establish and implement policies um, that will be more effective. Well, let's get into your principles. So principle number one, the traditional principle is policy should be technology neutral. And I ha I can't tell you how many times I've I've heard that uh, you know from both industry and from from policymakers, but your principle is technology choices need to be made. Could you explain that, please? Yeah, I mean it's very common to hear in in energy and climate policy arena that policies should be technology neutral, as as you mentioned. Uh, in the appropriate context, uh, technology neutrality can be very powerful, uh, and and it comes to the idea that you mentioned before. There was a lot of policy. Uh, R&D uh, instrumentation in the 80s, 90s that managed to put some technologies on the shelves. Uh, however, in the current state in which we are right now, in which we need a faster decarbonization and a faster pace on, on, on radical change, what we need is to make choices that allows the technologies that we have developed to uh, outperform the incumbents. If we don't make these choices, we... Um, we run the risk of basically favor some incumbents because there will be always policy decisions that will benefit some technologies over others. So it's way better for us to decide in a deliberative way than let uh, the technologies uh, grow in a way in which it might not be the more desirable one given the targets that we need to 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 reach. Sure, that's a good point that, that the... Uh, when you when you try for a technology a, a neutral approach, it's never a neutral environment in which you're working. There are always incumbents, and boy, we see this in North America. You know, the incumbent utilities, for example. You know, some of them are very innovative and and embrace the technology change, the you know flattening of the in utility business model, and others just want nothing to do with it, and they're putting up all sorts. And of course. In Canada, most of the utilities are owned by the governments, the crown corporations, and if, and they and they have a habit, uh, uh, a nasty habit of capturing the government because they have the expertise. They're the incumbent, and and so you know they 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 throw up barriers to to change into these new technologies. Okay, let's go on to the number two, uh, traditional principle: government intervention raises costs, but your principle: invest and regulate to bring down costs. Exactly. So the assumption is that government intervention will rise its cost, uh, uh, but that's not actually reflects uh, all the societal goals that we are trying to reach with the low carbon transition. There are uh, it's impossible to reflect all the cost, benefits, risk, and opportunities uh, associated to the to the low carbon economy. So it's well established that uh, markets uh, do not deliver, for example, public goods by themselves or always work efficiently because it's because of the externality the externality of all including uh, uh, learning by doing, including information asymmetries, including, of course, environmental externality per se. And this is something that happens way more when we talk about low carbon, uh, low carbon emission technologies. So in this kind of world, in a kind of a static world, we really need well-designed investments and regulation policies that can bring down those costs of clean technologies 
by creating the demand that we mentioned at the beginning for innovation. If we don't create these environments, it's very difficult that the private sector uh, will come and invest in something that we need because there is not a, a, um, a benefit for them that they can perceive and the risk overcome those, those benefits if we don't create the, the framework. That's a very good question. And uh, Mariana Mozzicato, who is my you know favorite economist at the moment, uh, talks about that in the entrepreneurial state. And, and that the state, this idea that the state is somehow passive or neutral and that the market does everything and, and the state is only there to fix market failures is really a fallacy. And, and the state in successful economies like in the U.S., the government is incredibly interventionist and, and subsidizes all sorts of new you know, research and development, commercialization, new, you know, adoption of new technologies, and always has been. The rhetoric is different. You know, the, 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 the myth is different. But in reality, government's been very involved. Uh, okay. Uh, and this gets us to principle no number three, the traditional principle, markets on their own optimally manage risks, but your principle actively manage risks to crowd in investment. Could you explain that? This directly connects with what I just, just mentioned. So meeting the international climate goals require a significant increase in investments of the order of 1 trillion US dollars per year between 2030 and, and 2050. Uh, uh, from different sources, venture capital, private equity, bank finance, state agency, and, and so on. So there is this expectation that markets can support this transformation with, with uh, uh, investment, but the reality is that there are many risks that markets are not able to take uh, on board and, and are characterized, and this deployment of these technologies is characterized by a lot of uncertainty. In these circumstances, markets will not act and we run the risk of not being able to deploy the technologies at the pace we need. In that, uh, in that context, of course, what we need to do is to try to uh, reduce technology risks and financing costs to increase the rates of deployment and, and the rates of investments. And this is what this principle is, is about. Mazzucato has some interesting ideas on that, and I've, I kind of uh, have a, a different, a little bit of a, wrink, a different wrinkle on them, and that is that uh, okay, so governments have to come in and 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 help the private sector manage, help markets manage risk. So there's political risk, capital risk, re regulatory risk, and and uh, and political risk. Uh, so when you de-risk something, you've added value, and if the state either invest money or in some other way, there's public taxpayer dollars, there's public capital involved. If if the public is de-risking the private sector, that's value and it should be rewarded. And the state may want to take may state may want to take equity, it may want to take, it may want to take a, a fee, you know, or like a royalty, something like that. But this idea that somehow, and this has been around for decades, and the Americans are the the, the you know the great practitioners of it, that the state the role of the state is just is just to fund all this re R and D and stuff, and then walk away and never get anything for it. I think is we have to kind of put that idea to bed. That's so. Anyway, uh, we'll we we've got a lot of stuff to cover before uh, before we end our, our interview. So let's go on to principle number four, uh, traditional principle: simply price carbon at a level that internalizes the damages of climate change. And your principle is 
target tipping points. I'm very interested in this. What can so, you tell us? What what the traditional uh, economics and, and principle and, and what public economics has told us always is that in the presence of a negative externality like uh, climate change, governments need to use or correct this externality with carbon pricing. Uh, however, the carbon pricing level that we need in order to internalize all the environmental damages that we are seeing these days would be impossible to, to, to reach. We cannot establish, uh, because of trade policies, because of many other things, a carbon pricing at the level that is necessary to internalize all the environmental damages and all the other um, externalities. And also, because we are talking about low carbon technologies, uh, we are dealing with uh, other externalities, uh, positive externalities associated to spillover effects of investments. So in this context, carbon pricing is a necessary uh, condition. We need the instrument, but it's not sufficient in order to generate the, the change, the structural change we need in the, in, the, uh, in the energy sector. That's why what we need is to complement this carbon pricing with investments in particular uh, places and what we call tipping points that are able to generate faster and, and more efficient uh, decarbonization uh, processes than the ones we would reach with only a carbon price. I had the privilege a few weeks ago of listening to a keynote address from Professor Charles Sable at Columbia, who's uh, been an active in industrial policy for a long time. And he made the point that a lot of economists are making these days that carbon pricing alone is not enough. You have to combine it with other industrial policies to get the outcome that you want in a, in the timely timely fashion. So this is kind of a, I guess, the point I'm making here is that this is a new trend in economics, a new way. You know, people are starting to rethink the role of carbon pricing. It is not the the single uh, policy instrument. It is part of a well designed suite of, of policies uh, that, that, as you as you said, uh, okay. Uh, Traditional principle number, this is the principle number five. The traditional principle is consider policies individually based upon distinct market failures. Your principle, combine policies for better outcomes. It comes and it connects again. So all the principles, as you can see, are connected one after the other. So the idea of this principle is that there are multiple externalities we are, we are dealing with at the same time. There are multiple co-benefits that we can generate and multiple trade-offs that we need to correct. Because it's true that a single policy will not manage to uh, um, effectively deal with all the goals we are trying to pursue. It's not only the carbonization, it's the carbonization, it's protection of biodiversity, uh, it's a just transition, it's many different things at the same time. So in order to correct all these trade-offs and generate co-benefits, what we need is a combination of policies that uh, uh, influence each other in a positive way. So we reach a point in which the sum of them is more than the sum of individual uh, policies at the at the same time, and and this combination will generate again a faster and a, and a more efficient transition because it will allow us to correct some of the trade offs that we that we have seen that happens in in energy and energy policy. Okay, policy number uh, number six, um, traditional policy uh, policy should be uh, optimal. Uh, your principle is that policy should be adaptive. Could you explain that? Yeah, so traditionally economic policy analysts are, are very concerned with um, maximizing economic efficiency, you know, seeking optimal policy 
to deliver the desired outcome at the lowest cost. However, this approach is very static and, and it concerns with the allocation of resources at a, at a given point in time. When we look at the low carbon transition, this transition is dynamic and it concerns about the creation of new resources, techniques, and a huge structural change over time. So the principle of optimality is, is not only difficult to get, uh, but it can even be in, impossible to reach. So in this case, given the size of the transition and how fast we need to, to do it, it's way better to be sure that we will commit mistakes and be ready to correct those mistakes and adapt policy as we move forward in order to avoid big uh, failures, but also to be able to fail if we have to fail and react uh, fast in a positive way. I was just listening the other day to an, uh, uh, an, an analyst talk about how uh, with industrial policy, it's really important to be adaptive like that and to make sure that the policymakers have access to information so that they, they get feedback, they get data, and they're always monitoring. And as the data changes, as they get a clearer picture of the impacts of the policy, they can adapt that policy to continue to get the optimal kind of out outcomes. So that makes a perfect sense to me. Okay, number seven, uh, traditional policy, act as long as uh, total benefits outweigh the costs. Your principle, put distributional issues at the center. What do you mean by that? So Traditional uh, uh, cost-benefit analysis, which are the, the ex-ante instruments that we use in order to decide which policies do we put in place, generally are concerned with the sum of those costs and benefits. In, and as soon as benefits outweigh costs, we act consequently. The problem is that these instruments don't take into consideration generally, because it's difficult uh, to understand welfare effects and, and the social welfare function who will benefit from what and who will be worse uh, if we put in place a policy. And we have seen examples, uh, the Gilets in, in France, for example, that if policy or if, if the public don't buy and don't interact correctly with the policy, the policy will fail. So we need to have in mind which are the distributional impacts of the different policies we put in place and correct adequately in order to manage to reach this fast, but also just transition uh, along the way. Uh, we're running out of time, uh, unfortunately. Uh, so I'm gonna skip uh, principles eight and nine because I wanna get to number 10. That's that I, I think is fascinating. And that is the traditional principle is policy models and assessments are neutral. And yours uh, principle is know your biases. Yeah, I mean, all the models that government use are based on multiplicity of assumptions. And these assumptions are never neutral. And most of the time are political. Uh, governments and policymakers are making choices of what are the goals we are looking for uh, and which ways we already uh, have in order to reach, to reach those goals. So it's very important that we are aware of those biases, of all those assumptions we are making in our own models and make choices transparently. As you mentioned before, it's very important uh, the transparency when we analyze policies ex ante before we put them in place, but also expose once we have implemented different policies. So we can, in that way, uh, understand better 
what different models are telling us and if they are all more or less in agreement about which are the the outcomes that that we will get now you mentioned the role of politics and and this is something that uh here we here at energy media do a lot of work on around energy politics and policy politics and one of the points that i think is very important is that policy doesn't exist in a political vacuum. And you can see the role that politics has played on the adoption of carbon price. Like here in Canada, one of the reasons why carbon pricing isn't working as well as policymakers would like is there's been so much uh, opposition parties have demonized the carbon tax. And, and it makes it, once you've done that, once you've changed the politics around policy, it makes it more difficult for government to act in, in an optimal manner. So government has to, from the very beginning when it's thinking about policy, it has to think about policy, it has to think about its narrative around that policy. How am I going to it, explain to, to voters, to taxpayers, very simply, why we need this policy, why we're doing this policy, so that they will support it. And when they support it, that then gives the government a free range or freer range to act in the way that that creates the kind of outcomes that they were looking for. Is that a, a fair comment? It's a, it's a very fair comment, because if there is one thing that we need actually to do better is this uh, effort of communication with the public. What you mentioned about the narratives is something uh, extremely important about all in context in which we are seeing this uh, disparity and polarization of ideas around climate change and around energy policy in particular. Communication with the public, clear messages, and, and trying to um, communicate, tell the public that whatever policy decision we are making is not in order to rise, for example, the revenues of the government, but it will have a positive impact on their welfare or, or their daily life. It's something that we need to become better uh, in order to, to manage and to engage with public uh, acceptability. Christina, I wish we had another uh, half an hour. This has been a fascinating discussion, and I know listeners are going to enjoy it. But uh, thank you very much, and we will definitely have you back on Energy Talks. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Thanks.